All right, so we have tons, and I don't know if it's possible even to get through it all. Um, I'm trying to think. I think we'll start with just a very quick look at our uh, Ezekiel at a glance. At this point, you should have all the way through chapter 32 titled, correct? Um, we don't need to go back through who's our author and all that, because we all know. We've been doing this well. If you have th Praise the Lord, right? You're going, thank you, Katie. <laughs> all right. Tell me, so far, what kind of insights have you gained by simply getting your at-a-glance chart put together? Are there any points that you want to bring up or questions that you want to ask? Because, it, you know, until we come again in January, this is your last opportunity. Unless you want to email me or come over. <laughs> Any, po any points, any, any insights or thoughts, things that you went, ah, nothing. Oh, my goodness, you guys. Huh, okay. Well, I, I have been, one of the things that kind of caught me, which is really more of a, a funny than it is necessarily a big aha, but just how many things have we seen in the book of Ezekiel where um, it's these little phrases that you hear about, like pride cometh before the fall. You know, I saw that <laughs> in our work this week and a couple weeks back about sour grapes. You know, we've learned about sour grapes. There's been a lot of little phrases like that that come right out of Scripture, and I'm going, that's, I bet that's where that started. I bet that's where that idea or that, that thought process came from. So I found that to be kind of humorous as we've gone through, and that's been a lot of fun. Um, I want to ask, though, just a couple of questions. Tell me, food for thought things, what have you learned in this study about the Lord? That's, okay, he's faithful. And, oh boy, yeah. along with his grace, we've got to realize his wrath towards sin. Yes. Do you think it's kind of a wake-up call for us as we've, you know, we on the, on the side of being those who walk in faith, um, and we have a, a, a secure, it's kind, I was thinking of it from this perspective just flashed in my mind, it's like a government job and you can't fire them, you know, or a teacher's union and you can't fire them. Well, you know, if you and I belong to the Lord, we're safe, right? But does that mean we are we are free from God's judgment on us in regards to discipline. No. no, not at all. So as you've observed how God treats those who are not of the household of faith, what do you think that means about those who are of the house of faith? How do you think God feels when we know how, it's kind of like you and I, if we look at the world around us and we see people who are unbelievers and they're behaving as unbelievers, you know, you kind of look at that and go, well, what do you expect, right? But what about when it's a believer? And You're saddened. Okay. There should be a higher standard. I kind of think about what we look at that in James where it talks about the teachers held to that higher degree of level. And I'm thinking in, in many regards, aren't we all? in that category of being the ones who are teaching the ways of God and teaching the precepts and principles of God's word. And so there is a higher standard because we know. We know better, right? Yes. Well, well I like uh, out of Ezekiel 6, there's, he says, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts. So we kind of tend to think that God is up there, you know, above emotions and that type of a thing, other than 
It does. It does. It, gr it grieves the Lord for so many reasons, pri primarily because if we are in covenant with him and we are wearing our jacket and our jacket says, I belong to Jesus, and then we go about our business in the world and we live as the unbelievers do, we join with them in their attitudes, in their anger, in their hypocrisy, in their whatever then this is a reflection upon the ones whose name we bear, right? How, do you, do, you know, you think about the idea of being a stumbling block then, right? That there's the potential that we are actually a stumbling block for people who, can, who are potential to come into faith, but they're observing our lives, and is, you, is your life, is my life, one which would say to a person, now that's what I want to be like. That's a faith that, is appealing to me. That is the image of a God whom I feel that is worthy. Or do they look at your life and go, that's the way a Christian is. Who wants it, right? So that, that is one point. What about Ezekiel's example as a watchman? What have we learned as we've observed poor Ezekiel? And I even think about Jeremiah before him and Isaiah before him, all these prophets. But Specifically with Ezekiel, what are some things that we've seen Ezekiel as an example test? What are some of the examples that we've learned from his life? Yeah, how how much um, personal commitment and dying to self do you think there has has been demonstrated to us through Ezekiel's life? Well, give me some examples of some things that. Yeah, the, the wife issue, that one was a big one to me. I thought, whoa, that one, that one would probably be the hardest one of the ones. Yeah, yeah. I know, and then you just moved on. Yeah, exactly. And he, and he was told don't mourn because, because and what was the point in that? What was his demonstration to the people as they were looking at him not mourning? Yeah. And why not mourn over Jerusalem? There you go. They got their just dessert. Yeah. Right. That's right. God. And a lot of, you know, they'll look at texts like this where God is judging nations or, you know, he sent the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites. And, you know, they say, oh, well, how did God commit genocide or whatever? Mm -hmm. You know, but you look at, I mean, God uses us to carry out his just judgment. Sometimes he even uses the unbeliever to do that. That's specifically what I'm thinking of is 32:11. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon will come upon you. By the sword of the mighty ones, I will cause your Lord. Yes. Yes.
say, oh, well, how sad, you know, but that could be God using an earthquake or God could be using Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, actually, this is a good point to bring up, James. Um, when we have observed things on the news and we've even heard uh, certain pastors make statements, well, this is God's judgment because of the things that are going on. This is God's judgment. Having observed Ezekiel, would you say now by looking at that, that that's probably more often the truth than it is not the truth concerning the affairs of man and the, the, the events that happen in the world around us, the weather, the the movement of nations and of our enemies, everything from, oh, you know, I remember back when we did, um, I think it was either Daniel or Revelation, and we did a study about oh, what are the things that God's in control of. And we went through, he's in control of you and I's personal finances. He's in control of our health. He's in control of the, the, our enemies that are in the world around us. He's in control of the weather. He, take, he, you know, he blows the wind and then calls it back. The tornadoes come through, and he and he directs them to actually move exactly where he wants them to go, and so it's either by his permissive will that these things happen, or by his deliberate will. And obviously, we don't know which. Yeah. But I think it's hard to say like, oh, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans because they're such a sinful city. Making those specific. It would be not a. It would not be wise to say those things. However. Right, exactly. It is sounds. Yeah. Weather and our climate and everything is broken because of sin. Right. And so right. It's all kind of right. But would you say no? Because we're in a safe we're in a safe place here where we can talk about this. Because now of observing these things that we've been seeing in Ezekiel, can can we not go out and proclaim this because we don't want to? Um, seem harsh or judgmental, and that's not our intent. But, but in our own hearts, are we willing to bow our knee and acknowledge that this could be God? Okay, so, and I do think that's a significantly important thing. And so sometimes when you've heard certain pastors, for instance, make an announcement like, well, that was God's judgment, probably because of X, Y, and Z, and they name a multitude of sins that are taking place in a certain location or a certain place, like, like you said with the Katrina thing, uh, not that we're picking on them in particular, but absolutely there. And what do we know about the, the ones about the Christians who are in the midst of those who are being judged? Okay. The, it, the righteousness and God's blessings can reign on the just and the unjust. And likewise, sometimes judgment falls upon and there's collateral damage, right? However, on the spiritual plane of things, though, what do we know about the ones who are righteous, even if they do die in God's time of judgment? All things work together for good. Okay. And absent that the body was present with the Lord. Right. So, so if, if there's collateral damage, as we've observed in this book, that there, there probably was some who, were, who died at the hand of Babylon or Assyria or one of these nations as they go in and kill... Uh, it's what we see going on in the world today. Are there Christians who are dying at the hands of Islamic terrorists and so forth? And some of them are righteous people. But what do we know the, the truth behind all that is concerning the ones that are righteous if they do die? First of all, that we know that they're secure with the Lord because why he's marked them. Do you remember the marking 
on the loin. Okay, so there's a marking of those who are in faith. And so if they die, what can you rest assured about their life then? Was it by accident that they died at that moment? Or was that a design by God for bringing them home? It's all designed by God. I mean, I think it's one of the things that has become really clear to me is how much in control God is of everything that's going on. Whew. I don't know about you, but that really lifts me up. Because when you get buried underneath a world of chaos and of evil and of just the fighting and the bickering and the sadness and the, and the evil motives and all these things that are going on, you can feel just defeated. But the reality is when we read through Ezekiel, are we not seeing a God who's sovereignly in control of every single thing? He, Daniel taught us that. Go ahead, Janet. Yeah. He, he, what we learned in, Ezekiel, in Daniel, he raises up kings and he puts kings down. Or he raises up kingdoms and he puts kingdoms down. This book is absolutely declarative on that. Right? I just think sometimes we lose perspective while we live in this world. Um, it's too easy to get wrapped around a personal agenda, whatever it is, good or bad. But often, often it's just not in alignment with God. So that when we lose perspective, then we come to wrong conclusions or we get dismayed, or we get shaken. And there's passages in the Word of God where he says, do not be dismayed, do not be shaken, right? Do not allow these people of the world around you to, to delude you to what is true, what I have said is true, and fall victim to their scare tactics or to their lies, and then lose hope, right? God says, Keep, set your eyes upon me, wait for the day of my coming. Anticipate it, be anxious for it. Anxious as in, yay, God. And I, we were talking a little bit earlier about this. I said that I sat at my computer last night and was reading through this Isaiah 19. If that was not encouraging, did you guys all get, I know it was like the last part of your homework, day five. But I want to read a little bit of this to you, those of you. Did everybody in here read this or no? no. Every, most everybody did. But let me read a little bit. This is so, this is so good. I just really have to read it. Isaiah 19, this is the oracle concerning Egypt. After what we studied in these four chapters about Egypt, judgment, 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 right? And not only will you go down, but all your buddies are going down with you, right? So the oracles concerning um, Egypt in Isaiah, he says this, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I incite Egyptians against Egyptians. Who does this? God does. He incites Egyptian against Egyptian. If that's not sovereignly God's hand in there, stirring the pot, stirring things up in order to accomplish, eventually accomplish his desire. And they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them and I will confound their strategy. Why does he want to confound their strategy? What is their strategy at this point? Is it God's way? Are they committed to Yahweh in the days of Isaiah? 
to serve him, to love him, to follow him, to be obedient to him, to submit to him? What did, what did Egypt do when uh, Zedekiah said, please come up and help us? The Babylonians are coming. What did they do? They went up to help, right? What had God already told uh, the, the uh, Israelites and really all the nations through the prophets? Yeah, he actually through Jeremiah had said, do not go. It's going to be uh, unsuccessful. Now, Ezekiel's saying basically the same thing. And so by, uh, by Egypt coming up and going against Israel, what was, what was Egypt really doing? Attempting to thwart God. Thwart what God said he was going to do. I know, it's really, it's just the most, it's the strangest thing. So it says, um, and they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and to spiritists. Well, even Babylon did that. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar, he, he consorted with the spiritists to even decide who he was going to come against. And what's really funny is God determined that he would draw the, 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 the right uh, direction, which would take him to take care of Jerusalem first, Right. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them. So now it keeps going on. It's all this lamenting about how the pillars of Egypt are going to be crushed, right? And let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zone have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those are words we're familiar with now, right? Because we've been studying this. Um, those who are the cornerstone uh, stone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Oh. There will be no work for Egypt, which is head or tails, its palm branches or bulrushes may do. On that day, the Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone in whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. Then here's a turn. This is the fun part as we get to these last few verses. In that day, now anytime you see a phrase, in that day, there is, there is a, a good chance it's speaking of the end of the age. Now, sometimes it speaks of in that day, the immediate day. How do you know the difference? Context number one and, so, and number two. In the context, what are you looking for to, to help you decide whether it's talking about Babylon or whether it's talking about the end of the age? There you go. You're trying to look for, for uh, any kind of clue as to whether or not those things have actually been fulfilled yet or not. We were talking about this in Sunday school class yesterday about that. And I said, you know, how, what clarifies prophecy is fulfillment. There's where your clarity comes. Eventually you come to know if, if, if something is already done or not done just because it's once it's happened, then you can say, oh, yes, this happened on this time, and this is how this was fulfilled, and this is how that's fulfilled. When we did Daniel, we found the same thing. We hit some verses in one of those passages in Daniel, I think it was chapter 11, where everything up to a certain point, we could say, oh, yeah, this was this king, this was this king, this was this, you know, siege or, or war. And then we hit the last few verses, and it talks about that king that's in the future, and there's all these controversials. Well, it could be this, and maybe it was that. And blah, blah. Well, when you start hitting that kind of controversy, you can almost rest assured it probably is not fulfilled yet. That's why it's so uncertain. It's why it's so debated. And you can just set it aside and say that's yet for the end of the age. 
So, in that day is a clue, a clue phrase that you can look at and look to see, is that speaking of fulfilled or prophetically down the road? In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord. Is Egypt swearing allegiance to the Lord? Has that been fulfilled yet? Okay, so now what do we know about in that day in this passage? Future. 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 End of the age. Isn't that easy to do? It, was that that hard? Isn't that an awesome little tool just to say, okay, has it happened yet? No. Okay, that's the end of the age in that day. All right. Um, it says they're going to swear an allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make him, himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Isn't that amazing? As opposed to what Israel did, made a vow to God in what? Broke it, which is why we're reading Ezekiel, right? Because they made a vow, but then they didn't keep it. Uh, in verse 22, the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So it's a different kind of striking. It's not a striking to destroy. It's a striking. It's a discipline. It's the, it's the, the rod of correction is what's going to be is spoken of here. So they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. Wow, they're going to be friends. And guess what land they have to pass through to get there? Israel, right through Israel. And in that day, there will be a highway then from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Yeah, that's like, uh, we're looking at the world right now. Can you imagine Assyria and Egypt coming into Israel and worshiping and praising God, worshiping together? And God will have brought them all into faith and belief in him. That, it's hard for us to believe that almost, isn't it? Well, that has to be the millennium period because I mean, oh, yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So in that day is speaking at the end of the age as God has done his purging and his wrath and so forth that's been poured out. The end of the age, then God is going to do that. And he talks about even... Um, in some of the parables about the separating of the sheep from the goats. We can probably better understand that now, a little bit better having done Ezekiel too, how God is the sovereign over it. He knows the heart of the individual, and he discerns them, and he separates them out. And the ones that are his, he draws to himself. Here he says, he says he's going to discipline them, but it's, for a per, it's not a purpose to be against them for harm, but a purpose to be against them to discipline and bring them to himself. So there's a process that's going to take place over the, the end of the age. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's another one that talk, I think it's Psalms where it says, and they will grab the coattails and, and they, it will say, uh, we will go to the house of the Lord together. It is just, what an amazing thing. Nations that come against Israel. What have we learned about nations that do come against Israel? God will come against them. Why? That's the verse I wanted to hear. That's that Genesis chapter 12. Those who bless you. Okay, Kathleen, you get the star then. And you get a star for fessing up. <laughs> All right. So any other thoughts about that? Is there, Yeah, Susan. Yeah. Does it give you um, a little different perspective too sometimes when you look around even within the household of faith as you watch certain people either say or do certain things that they feel the Lord is really leading them to do and as long as it's not violating doctrine you do have to look at your, your, your word of God and say does this line up right? But does it help you in any way to be a little more gracious to the spiritual giftedness of the house of faith and as God is trying to work to bring people in? You, you, you cannot make a box, a formula, and cram everyone into it, can you? God works like Susan said, outside the box. So here he took, what, how, in what ways did, did Ezekiel work outside the box? And that was a problem because? Right. It's violation of, you know, do you remember um, back when the, the, it was a really big thing about the idea of the pastors going out into the city? I remember watching an old movie once where the nuns went out into the city and, the, and it blew the, you know, the a patriarchal woman, I can't remember her, what, the Reverend Mother or whatever she was called, she's like, oh, oh, you can't do that, you'll be in danger or whatever, and they're going, oh, no, oh, I think it was Whoopi Gold, Goldberg, one of those movies. There you go, Sister Act, and they go out and then, and then they're, they're shaking things up, why? Because, you know, of course, not that Whoopi had any kind of really good intentions, she was just bored, but, but isn't it interesting that God, if you look at it just purely from a perspective of the spiritual work of God, if it weren't a movie, if it were a real-life scenario, could this not be God moving his people out into a community? Um, but likewise, within the household of faith, aren't we each designed and equipped for our own work? For some of us, we're designed and equipped to work within the house. You know, it would be silly for me to try to teach what I try to teach to unbelievers. They are not going to sit through this class, right? But my gifting is to teach, and so my confines is within the house. This is my job. So for me to try to step outside of that, not that I can't do that on occasion, but, but if, I, if it makes me lose um, perspective or lose commitment to what I am designed and created to do, then I also blow it in my, in my work for God. So we have to, I think, look at the household of faith and say, what is your giftedness? How has God designed you? What has God placed on your heart? Does it line up with the word of God? And if so, go do it. 
but give people the freedom to, to be and to do what God has designed them to do. Don't try to put them in a box and say, this is the parameters. This is what everyone should look like because not everyone is going to look alike, are we? As Ezekiel was doing what God was calling him to do, as we, you know, we think, oh, he's just special because he was called prophet. We're all the called. We're all special to God. Every one of us, and you and I, not one of us know what special thing that you either have done or will do yet in your life that is unique to just your life and, and how that you know, affects or impacts God's kingdom work. All I know is you and I, just like Ezekiel, we need to be obedient. Obedient to the point of being willing to even humiliate ourselves. Even being willing to, if God says so, to violate some of the norms of the Christian realm, right? In his realm as a priest, it was, a, it was considered ceremonially uncleanness to shave his head. And yet God told him, shave your head. So, you know, certainly we want to, we want to not violate known doctrine as God's children. Uh, but we also want to be obedient to God's calling and his work through us. Feces to eat off of it. Right. Yes. 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 Oh, that's that's a good point. Yeah. Yes, she's. I know. I see her regular. Yes, I do. She and I. We're we're in a quilting group with her. Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll have. Yes, I know she does. Uh, no, she goes to Woodlawn, where I used to teach. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I love it when you see God's people serving the Lord, doing what God's called them to do. I want to see us be gracious, too, as we watch to see how God is going to use one another. We are not all designed to do the same exact thing. But one thing that is also very important is that we keep one another in, in check. You know, if, if it's outside of um, doctrinal truth, then we need to correct one another, obviously. But we also need to make sure that we are not stepping in um, before the Lord when God is trying to do a work either through someone or something to discipline someone even, potentially. I mean, this faith walk that we have, it is such a glorious thing, and it is a personal faith walk for each of us. It's personal. You have to be able to stand before the Lord one day with your head up and to embrace that moment with confidence and with without shame not that we don't have a lot to be ashamed of but knowing that Jesus Christ paid the price for us that 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 is a debt that we are released from because of his blood and because of his work and what's amazing to me is Ezekiel is showing the the faithfulness of God in his 
working to accomplish that which he has done so far and that which he is going to yet do. And so as we are journeying, as Ezekiel did, we are to be faithful to the Lord and to his calling in our life and to do the things which God has asked of us and to do so with the confidence that comes really from only knowing the Lord personally, being in the word as you all are on a regular basis, and, and um, being willing for personal sacrifice to come in there. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes it really does. It means putting your family things aside. It means putting your personal joys aside. I mean, I, I got to confess, I mean, I'm anxious for the break because I'm excited about having some free time now from studying to be able to do a few other things. But, but still, my, my greatest joy is with this. I love doing this. You guys bought me gorgeous thank you gifts. All those DVDs are awesome. You don't ever have to give me a thing. And I do this with so much joy and delight. And I would be doing this whether you all were here or not. I can remember, I can remember there have been times in my life with the precept and the teaching of it. I've had one student. For, for a period of time, I did one over the Internet. I did my study, posted things online, and they would communicate with me online because I'm going to do it whether I have an audience or not. <laughs> so I'm so thankful you guys are here to do this with me. But this journey that we have with the Lord is, is a personal call. And I think what God sometimes does is he takes us through these ebbs and flows in our life where he can say, are you committed to me? Will you do it even if... And these obstacles can come, and then he's going to say, are you going to be faithful to me? Am I going to be the priority? You know, as it says in the, to the letter of the church of uh, Ephesus, am I your first love? Is there a worship of me that comes above and beyond anything, anything else in your life, any other commitment in your life? And if so, then God is going to bless it. And there'll be good days and bad days as we journey with the Lord. And boy, I can tell you, Ezekiel has some good days and bad days, did he not? <laughs> Wow. All right. So let's move on then and start to talk about what we did in the homework because, boy, did we, had, we just did so much. Let's start in chapter 29 as we wrap this all up. Um, I know there's a lot of attention. She gives us a lot of attention to detail on timing of things. So what do we see in 29.1? What is our timing? Okay, let's just put the 587 B.C., and it was that 10th year of, of Jehoiakim's uh, captivity, right? And so that's in 29.1. I know, and it goes on. 10th month and first day or whatever, 12th day. Yeah, yeah. So personally for me, I'm not as concerned about those minute things. What I want to see is just sequence of order. This happened and this happened and these are the things that happened before and these are the things that happened after. If I can just get the perspective, it helps me to better understand the, either the reaction of the people or the things that are going on. Yes, Kathleen. I am so sorry, Kathleen. <laughs> I think you should come do a timeline for us. You have one done? Yeah. I know, I know. I poor, poor Wes. I made Wes do a timeline yesterday. Can you put that on the timeline for us? Oh, I meant Tom, not Wes. I'm so sorry. You're right. Why was Wes on my brain? 
You're right. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> I do know who he is. All right. So, but he did well, didn't he? He stepped right in and filled it in. It was awesome. All right. Tell me what do we see about our theme in chapter 29? On the whole, what is going on in this chapter? That one of the things about doing a book like Ezekiel is it is history. Because it's history, almost everything is focused on the events. What is the event that's going on in this particular chapter? Okay, exactly. So it is judgment on Egypt. Now, what verse have you got as your key verse? Do you have one marked by chance? Does anybody have a specific verse in the, that you pulled wording right out of the text? Because she's absolutely correct. It's judgment of her. Very good. Okay, so set your face against Pharaoh. King of Egypt. Oh, I love having all this room to write. Thank you, thank you, Lois. <laughs> nice. Okay, it is a prophecy. Okay, set your face against Egypt, and it is a prophecy. It is actually, all of Ezekiel is a prophecy almost. All of it is him speaking the word of the Lord either against or for a, a, a particular group of people, right? Um, now, we have some imagery going on in this one too, don't we? What do we have for imagery? What is the first imagery that we get, which is in verse 3? There's a great monster. Isn't that really interesting? And he's a great monster in the sea, in the Nile, right? A great monster. Did you see my little guy on your page? <laughs> uh, why do you think I chose that one? Yeah, what do we know about Egypt and how they, and how they looked at their rulers and uh, as their kings? Often whenever we see, a, um, it says as, as a great monster in the Nile. Imagery, as a great monster in the Nile. And who is the one that's as the great monster? Yeah, that's right. Pharaoh. So that's the imagery. It's Pharaoh as a great monster in the Nile. And so then it goes on down. And it, let's, Did anybody do a word study on that great monster? Just going, I don't know what that means or what's going on. Yeah, James. A great dragon. That's right. It could be. And you know what's interesting about that is, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Oh, yeah. There. Do you know what? That behind the scenes, we know that's true too, because of what we studied last week, right? What did we study last week about what James just said? The idea of you know imagery in the scripture. The great dragon in the Revelation account is Satan, right? And it goes on very explicitly explaining he's the, say, he's the serpent of old, the one that was Eden, and so forth. And it goes on and tells you, called the devil. Well, in this imagery here, he, we see Pharaoh as a, as a great monster. And by definition, monster can be translated dragon. So again, if we go back to what we saw about the king of Tyre and the imagery there, what's going on with, with that imagery in that particular account. Do you remember? Who was the king of Tyre depicting? Satan, Satan himself, right? And it gave us a litany of things that we know that he was a cherub. He was created to be the covering over, over God's ark and so forth. 
So in this particular account, there is certainly an allusion when we see the definition to the idea, oh yeah, there's still that supernatural force or power that seems to be directing or guiding even the kings and so forth of the nations of that time. All right. Um, and and P.S., and by the way, if you do a Genesis course, the crocodiles, if they lived long enough, they grow, they continue to grow all their life. They get bigger and bigger and bigger, and guess what, what you get one day? What we would call a dragon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So imagery as a great monster in the Nile is Pharaoh. So that's our first imagery. What do we learn about him? What does he say about himself in verse 3? Yeah. He, Pharaoh says this about himself. He says it's my Nile is mine, right? And then he said about it also, I myself have made it. <laughs> All right, so then what is the contrast to that then in this? He thinks he's so great, doesn't he? You, we can just put the word pride right over here, big time. That sounds just like the king of Tyre. Sounds just like Satan, doesn't it? In that prideful night. Pardon? Yes, it does. Just like Nebuchadnezzar standing up on the roof of his. This is my great nation. I built it all by myself, right? All right. So, but the reality, he has a delusional thinking of who he is and his power and his greatness and, and how he attained it. What should he have been thinking? Thank you, Lord, for giving me this great kingdom, for placing me in history in this time and place, for giving me the throne, right? David used to say that a lot. Thank you for, you placed me on this throne. You put me here at this time. So there was, what a contrast if you look at some of the other writings of how people perceived their position in life, right? Finally. He sure did, and he lifted his eyes to heaven, and he praised God most high, didn't he? All right, so in this one, though, drop down to verse 7, and what do we see, though? He's delusional. He says, this is my Nile. I myself have made it. He thinks he's so powerful. He thinks he's all in control. What happens with this particular king when he goes to, to help Israel? Okay. All right, so we have another little imagery there, huh? But the first one in seven, before we drop to the, the next imagery, in seven he says, Israel took his hand, right? And when Israel took a hold of his hand, this guy that's supposed to be so powerful and so awesome and so in control and so, you know, sovereign or whatever, what does it say that ha happened when they took hold of his hand? So he broke and tore all their hands. Now, what I want you to see here is how this is a contrast. Verse 3 to verse 7 is actually a contrasting statement because this is what he thinks of himself, but this is the reality. He also said of them, when Israel leaned on him, he broke and made their loins quake. Okay. Well, you know, it's interesting because 
the story behind that was what? My nose is itching so bad. I need more allergy medicine. <laughs> okay. He broke and made their loins quake. Yeah. Go back to Jeremiah. Do you guys remember? She asked you to go back and look at Jeremiah 37. Let's just read verses 1 to 8 together on that. And just to remind ourselves what we see going on there. We're not going to have this much time in all of the chapters, but I kind of want to lay a foundation. Because 29, 30, 31, and 32 are all about who? All of them are about Egypt. So if we lay a really good foundation here at the beginning in 29, then the rest of it's just going to bounce off of what we lay as foundation right now in this, ver this first chapter. So in Jeremiah 37, 1 to 8, what's going on there? Somebody want to just read that to refresh our memories because I, I know for some of us it feels like an eternity ago since we read that. Okay, good. So what we see there, and, and I know there's a lot of big words. If you could just skip by the big words and get to the heart of the message. What was going on there was there was a king. He had sent uh, word to the Lord through Jeremiah. He wanted to know, ask and inquire of the Lord about these things, right? But however, what had God already told is, uh, Israel about their situation? That's right. This judgment is from the hand of the Lord. And he actually gave them a kind of an interesting word of promise in the midst, midst of all that. Although he was going to send the Babylonians against Jerusalem to take control of it, to destroy it, to remove it from their hand. What had he told them if they would just bow their knee to, to the Babylonians when they came in? What did he say of them? They could stay on their land. They could have actually stayed there and not lost their lives, right? But instead, what did they do? They went, they sent down to Egypt for help. So does that make this verse sound a little bit more understandable? That when Israel leaned on him, this is talking about them leaning on 
um, the, the nation of Egypt to have them help them in this day when Babylon was coming up against them. So if you get the timing on this in your mind correct, then these statements actually are historical truths that have already happened. They not only ignored Jeremiah's word from God about not going there, but they took Jeremiah with them when they went. Yeah, yeah. Jeremiah, Poor Jeremiah. <laughs> Yeah, and Jeremiah ends up in prison for a, quite a long period of time, and then eventually one of the other kings, I think it was the king of Persia, lets him out. Or it might have been one of the other kings, I can't recall. But anyway, so, but Egypt will come to help Judah, but doing so will put them in conflict to God's judgment against her. Egypt's help will be a disaster for all. And this is what they have been told, and they have been told this repeatedly. This was not like a one-time thing. And it wasn't like five minutes before it happened. They have been told and told and told. And we've seen this in Jeremiah, have we not? Year by year, sometimes it's a year between uh, prophecies that he makes. Sometimes it's three months. Sometimes it's two weeks. But on a consistent basis over the period of how long? We started this in the fifth year, right, of Jehoiakim's reign with Ezekiel. Now, previous to this was Jeremiah. He, too, had a longer even period of time of prophesying. And he told them over and over and over. In the beginning, it was what? What was he telling them in the beginning when he first started his prophetic uh, utterances to them? What would you say is the key word? <laughs> Pardon? Either one, but, but in particular, Jeremiah. His first call to them was to do what? Repent, 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 right? And they didn't do it. And eventually he says, okay, now God's going to judge you. He's going to judge you. He's going to judge you. And when he does, do this, and it'll be fine. And, when he, and, and, of course, they didn't listen. So here we're seeing an example of that. Zedekiah sends down to Egypt. He says, Egypt, come help me. And Egypt, even though Egypt also has heard the word of the Lord, because they're all talking. It's not like this is an a, a exclusive club that when God speaks only his people get to hear. Everyone hears what the word of the Lord has been. Remember the stories about Paul and Mars Hill and they would stand at Mars Hill and they would discuss all the things of the philosophies of the day or whatever. You know, the people of that day, we have a bad perception of what they knew and what they didn't know. We seem to think that things are very uh, withheld and, and confined and they weren't. The word of the Lord traveled up and down the highways and people talked and they shared the, their insights and the words that had been spoken, particularly the words of any prophet. If there was a prophet speaking from their God, and of course it doesn't matter which God, but when it was the God of, of the people of Israel, Yahweh, who was trying to proclaim himself as the God, the only God, and, and he wants his people to be a light on the hill and they're doing everything but be that. So when God's prophets speak and the nations hear and they did Egypt would have heard that that Israel's God had said I'm going to judge you Israel and so here we have the king of Egypt coming in against God basically to thwart God's judgment against his people for their disobedience to him this is a this could be a whole lesson, you guys. We could so have you ever had a situation in your life where sometimes you've stepped in the way of God disciplining someone. You've tried to make smooth it over for him, make it better for him, and your intention may have been good or not. But sometimes you need to evaluate and step back and go, Am I am I stepping in the way of God? You have to be careful to not do that. 
Um, and it's hard to discern sometimes when, when is the appropriate time to be compassionate and what is an appropriate time to step back and say, you have made your bed. Now, there is another little phrase. Did they not say that in here? They have made their bed? Where, had they made, where did Egypt make her bed? Do you remember? It was in that last 32, in Sheol. Go down to Sheol. You've made your bed. Sleep in it. Have you heard, have you heard, isn't that, see, there's another one of those funny little word phrases I've thought, oh, there's another one. They've made their bed, now they've got to sleep in it, you know? And so this is what we see going on here. When Israel took hold of, of um, Egypt's hand, Egypt broke and tore all their hands, both of them, Egypt and Israel. When Israel leaned on Egypt, Egypt broke and made their loins quake. So both of them were harmed because of Egypt trying to step in and thwart God's discipline of his people. Boy, aren't they? And so are we, but yes, they are so, it's hard to, it's just exasperated. You know, I think what, we got two advantages, all of us. We have two advantages. Number one, we're on this side of the fulfillment of all these things. So we have a complete confidence that what God said he would do, he was going to do, right? So we can see it, it's done, it's it's absolutely. The other thing is we also have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within us, which convicts us and gives us insight and light to truth. Now, I would have to argue, though, that in the Old Testament, they had that same access to that kind of light. Daniel had it, and we saw it through him a lot. But, of course, they didn't have the abiding Holy Spirit. So we do have a little advantage. And they had it in their life. Think about the life that the Hebrew led. Every single day was a life of, of recognizing, discerning evil from good, right? Discerning the clean from the unclean. Every single day was an acknowledgement of God Most High as their provider. Every single day, every tradition, every time they opened up a jar or something and prepared a meal, they had to be careful how they prepared it, that it was done in a way which was kosher, right? That's the problem. That's okay. So good point. Are we guilty of the same thing sometimes? Right. Right. I I have been enjoying. The, oh, I can't say enjoying, because it's been painful too. But, you know, the, ex the self-examination of my own heart before the Lord and what, where are the ways in which I have strayed. And mostly it has to do with attitude and, you know, my heart. You know, not so much my behavior, because I've walked with God long enough that most of my behavior is pretty well guarded. Doesn't mean I can't fall, because I can fall. But, but I'm saying that I think you're right. You beca it becomes so ritualistic, as, as Celeste was saying, that sometimes we lose sight of it. It's like showing up to church on Sunday morning. We're just checking the, the, the square, so to speak. But what we have to do is, is uh, look at the imagery that's given here and say, is there that kind of pride in myself? Do I think I've come, arrived, so to speak? And am I in any way thwarting God's work in the world around me? either in my family, with my children, with my friends, with whoever. 
you know, and we can examine ourselves in that way. Jeremiah said, had told King Zedekiah that Egypt will fail and the Babylonians will return and finish the siege on Judah. That's what you said, you read right at the very end of that passage. So we need to know that God had told them, God had warned them. There's a lot of things that God has told us and warned us about already. We know so much of God's plan. We're just waiting. We are at the end, really. I, I know every generation says that, but truly, we are so close to the end of the age at this point. There are so many things that we know God is doing. And so as we watch our world around us, we can say, we know where God is headed. Don't try to thwart God, but... Be the one who discerns the good from the evil. Be the one who says this, give a word of comfort that says, God has said, thus saith the Lord, which is a key repeated phrase in this chapter, or in, these, in all of these chapters, all of Ezekiel so far, and thus saith the Lord. And that's what Jerem, or Ezekiel kept saying over and over, and this is what the Lord has said. He has said this, and he has said this, and he says he's going to do this, and he has done this, and this is what you're doing, and God wants you to change and repent. And he gave them these insight after insight, and he exposed their sin. All right. Um, Ezekiel, so Ezekiel also warns um, that attempts to rescue Judah from God's judgment will fail. So Ezekiel does the same thing. He says this in, in chapter, or verse 5 of 29. Egypt will fall, right? And this is where verse 6 comes. James, you mentioned it earlier. What was the imagery there? Mm-hmm. Okay, what does that mean? Did you look that one up? No, they're really not. As a matter of fact, if you take a, a, a reed and use it as a, as a walking stick even, what's eventually going to happen? If it's stiff enough to work even for a period of time, sometimes they might. Sometimes reeds are pretty, pretty especially when they get dried out, they're like a cane. They can, they can be pretty firm for a while. But they're not like a piece of solid wood, right? No, nor a piece of wood maybe with a steel rod running through it, which really gives it strength, correct? So, but, but a, a read in this imagery, he says about it, what is going to happen? He sa and he uses the word only in that verse 6. Did you see it? Only, only, yeah. You will only be a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. So, they think what? I'm so great. I'm all this. I am in control. I am all powerful. And he's saying, well, you're only going to be as a reed to them. So then he says, and this is what the Lord has said. And here's a thus says the Lord kind of a, of a thing, although I don't know if it actually said that statement right in there. But tell me what is, starting in eight, verse 8 on down, what do you see some of the things that God said he's going to do? I will bring upon you a sword. Mm -hmm. Okay. I will bring against you... A sword. Now that becomes a repeated uh, statement, doesn't it? Um, about the idea of a sword coming against. It's almost like a, a major theme in here. A sword is going to come against them. And concerning that, say it again. Well, he's going to bring it because you said denial is mine. Yes. Isn't that interesting? So he actually. The actual reason, 
Yes, I love the becauses. If you have not been marking your becauses, make sure you do. Because a because is there because, right? And it explains to you why God is doing what he's doing. He's not saying he's going to bring against them a sword because they were weak when they came to help him. But he says, I'm going to bring it against you because of your pride and because you tried to thwart me. I gave you my word. You knew what I was going to do with, with uh, Israel concerning their disobedience. And you stepped in to try to help them. And therefore, I'm going to bring a sword against you. There was a defiance on the part of Egypt against God in what they did. It was, and, and God actually calls it later um, um, in verse 16. What does God call this act that Israel did? Iniquity. So this was an act of iniquity. In verse 16. And that's why God is going to now judge Egypt. Not because, you know what you could, we could do? We could look at this and say, oh, it looks like Egypt is actually trying to be a good neighbor and be helpful. And so we're, we could look at this with an untrained eye and say, well, that doesn't seem very fair that God would judge Egypt when Egypt was trying to help, right? Is that not what some people could do when they looked at that? But the problem is, is this is iniquity. You have to look for those key words. You have to look for the issue here, which was the pride of Egypt, thinking that they were able to or, or even should thwart God, the God of Israel in any way, whatever it is that he is doing. After that, the iniquity, throughout the whole book, of course, we know, then you will know that I am the Lord. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Okay, and that is in verse what? Well, it's all over. I know, but give me 6. It is in 16. Okay. Okay, so he says, I, and he says, I am going to do this. I'm going to bring a sword against you, and then, then you will know. I am the Lord. I am the all-powerful one. I am the one that's in control here, not you. Okay. When he when he got a hold of Jeremiah and, and some of those people, he said he he got it. He said the Lord your God promised this calamity against this place, and the Lord has brought it on and done just as he promised. Because you people, he's talking about the Jews, sinned against the Lord and did not listen to his voice. Therefore, this thing has happened to you. Yes. So he got it. That probably the same message had gotten out there. Absolutely. That is exactly my point. That's what I wanted to really carefully go through this 29 on for that reason, because I want you to understand, excuse me, that both Israel and Egypt are being judged. Are they both being judged? Yes. Now, in the judgment of Israel, God is being careful to, to retain a, a remnant that he might fulfill in her what he promised through the covenant to Abraham, correct? That through her would come the seed who would be the Christ. And so he can't utterly destroy her, although she deserves it. And, and, and yet, at the same time, he is still judging. He's not letting her get away scot-free. However, he took a, sure took a long time, didn't he? He waited, he waited. What is his patience? What is that about? His hope is that they would repent, that they would turn, that they would begin to acknowledge, you know, their covenant with God and obey it. But so his patience, and we, I think of this anyway in the world today as I look at all the chaos that's going on, I think, Lord, 
when will you come? When will you come? But the Yes. Yes, that's a good one. That's a good one. I like that verse. His mercy triumphs over judgment. And his patience is salvation to the many. So until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, we are waiting on God to finish his work, orchestrating the affairs of man, lining up the nations, getting things ready. And boy, if you, are, you have to be totally asleep and, and not paying attention at all if you cannot see the things that God has been doing already thus far. To rebirth a nation which was dead in the world. To... Yes. That's right. Good job. Good job, Margaret, remembering all that. That's awesome. So here we saw the imagery of a, uh, a, it was a reed as a staff, meaning that it was weak, right? Even though they thought they were all pride of strength and power, right? So they had this pride of strength and power, but they were actually weak. And therefore, uh, the Lord said, because of your pride, I'm going to bring a sword against you. And for, as far as Israel, their, Israel's part on it, Israel was committing iniquity. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it has to, you know, alliances back in those days. There was obviously a tit-for-tat of some kind that was going on between Egypt and Israel. I don't know the full history. Does anybody know exactly what the motivations would have been for um, Egypt to come up and help Israel at this time? Yes. That's very interesting that you say it that way because what we just read earlier about Isaiah, that one day that road is going to be made clear and the two of them will go to and fro through Israel, but they will all go to the house of the Lord to worship together. And so, again, it has to do with alliances of the nations. One of the things that you saw, and we're, we're probably not going to get to all of them, as you can tell already, but when, when you look ahead at these nations that are all named, uh, that are involved in these things. And a lot of the times he's talking about the nations that are immediately engaged around this, this, the heart of Israel. Israel's at the heart of it and all the nations, north and south and east and west of her, are the ones that God deals with immediately in that day in particular, but also in the days of Babylon as he was doing what he was doing or needing to do for her to remain in her a, a remnant to fulfill God's word that through her this Messiah will come, and to fulfill at the end of the age his bringing an, of uh, salvation to all Israel, right? Meaning that he will save those who will be saved and the rest they will die. But God has the process. So, yeah, it had to do with alliances and mutual benefit, benefit of some sort. Yeah, and Pharaoh has, is Egypt. Well, and that's why going back to Jeremiah 28 was really helpful. I, th I thought it was anyway. Um, verse 16 also gives us another reason why God is doing this with Egypt as far as judging her. What does he say there in 16? That besides the fact that they will know that I am the Lord also. 
are very good. They do not, they, you will never again be the confidence of Israel. They don't want Israel relying on Egypt. God actually said, and, and that's when I said in verse 16, he said, Israel turning to Egypt was what? Iniquity. So he's saying, look, this iniquity of you running to your neighbors for your health, for your strength, for your protection, and also, by the way, P.S., against my authority, which I have said I'm going to discipline you, then uh, this is iniquity and I'm going to judge it. And he says, I'm going to make sure this does not happen again. So he judges Israel, or he judges Egypt, rather. Now, I thought was really interesting. Then let's jump over to, um, let me think which ones. I'm thinking it's 28. Hold on, let me look. No, maybe it was 27. Where's the one with all of, we, it was 32, I guess. Hold on. I'm going the wrong direction. I can't find my sheets because I'm moving in the wrong way. I am looking for 32 starting in... Um, Verse 17, this is another prophecy that Ezekiel gives to them in 32. And it's in the 12th year on the 15th of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt and bring it down to her and the daughters of the powerful nations. So then the nations are mentioned at this point, right? What is the key repeated? There's actually two key words in the passage then that follows. What are the two things? The uncircumcised and the pit. Now, define the pit. Did anybody do a word study? Actually, if you just made a list out of the words here, you'd get the definition very clear. You hardly didn't need to do it. It says it's Sheol. But you know what? Uh, you, you say that like everybody knows this. But you know what? There's a lot of people who don't understand Sheol. They don't. Uh, and so what do we know about Sheol? Where, what is the place of Sheol? It's the place of the dead. Now, in the times of this writing, Old Testament, who was in the place of the dead? Everybody. The righteous and the unrighteous. Now, what was the distinguishing difference as far as this place of Sheol? Were there pla was there a distinguishing mark between the two places? Paradise. That's right. The bosom of Abraham and the place of torment. Now, you can study this if you don't know about this in Luke 16. This is the story in the New Testament. Actually, we say New Testament, but it's still before the cross. Don't forget when you look at it. Before the cross, Luke 16, there's a picture there of Lazarus and the rich man, right? And the two of them go down to Sheol. Each of them have died at their, at their own appointed times. But when they get into the place of Sheol, then there are two compartments. And you can literally draw it out as a picture. And you can see the, the function of that place called Sheol. And in Sheol, um, there is a confinement. They call it prison when you get into definitions on it. Here it calls it the pit, the grave, um, the lower parts of the earth, the netherworld, right? And he says about this place, and then ultimately his title, the title of it is the Sheol. And in this place then, in one place it's a place of torment, the other place is a place called paradise. 
And what did Jesus say to the rich man on, next to him on the, in the cross on the day of his death? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So that meant not heaven, which many people mistakenly think, because where did Jesus say he would be for three days and three nights? In the belly of the earth. When he resurrected and saw Mary on Resurrection Sunday, what did he say to her? Don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to the Father. He then ascends to the Father after the resurrection because he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Through the conversation in Luke 16, you see that there's an ability to have conversation between those two sides, the place of torment and the place of paradise, right? But they cannot leave. They are confined, right? Because it is appointed unto man once to die and then what? Face their judgment, whatever it is. This is a doctrinal truth that you cannot violate. You don't get a second chance. Once you're there, you're there. The, the rich man said, can you please send someone? And he says, first of all, we can't go because we are here. But second of all, even if a, a person rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Who rose from the dead? Jesus did. And they still, many of them did not believe. So it, it's just a beautiful passage. If you want good insight on Sheol, uh-huh. Pardon? It's still today. People don't believe. No, they still don't. They do. Now, tell me about in the New Testament about that place of paradise. Is it still, is it still um, filled with people? No. What happened on the day when Jesus ascended into heaven? He took with him a host of captives and set them free. That's what you see in Ephesians uh, 4.8, I think it was. So in Ephesians, he says, and he set captives free, and he sent gifts to men. He he gave us the, the gifts of the Spirit. He, say, he sent to us the, um, uh, the Spirit, right, on Pentecost. Mm -hmm. I think it's literal. Because in the, in the Revelation account, you see that the earth gives up its dead when God destroys it. That's the grave. It's speaking of all of it. All of it. And Jesus went somewhere. It says he went down to Sheol. And that's where all the images. Here it says it too. The netherworld. And when you look up your definition on that, the netherworld, um, it is um, called underworld, below, beneath, in, place of no return. Um, play, there are some places that call it the, the belly of the earth is what Jesus spoke, himself spoke of it, in the belly of the earth. Um, without, a, without praise of God is another definition. Wicked are sent there for punishment. The righteous are not abandoned to it because in the New Testament, faith in Jesus now allows us to go absent from the body and present with the Lord. So praise God, we no longer go to Sheol. But if you look back in the Old Testament, if you ever read stories of David or, or Abraham or any of the old patriarchs, and you, say it, you see them, particularly in the, in the Psalms, they anticipate going down to Sheol. And I used to get confused by that. I'm going, wait a minute, if they love the Lord, why are they expecting to go to hell? I mean, that was my thought. Well, guess what? It's not hell, it's Sheol. And Sheol had two places, paradise and the place of torment, all people went into Sheol in the Old Testament. In the New Testament now, only the, the wicked called here what? The uncircumcised. They go down to Sheol. In our 
new t- in our New Testament days, after the cross, we are absent from the body and now present with the Lord. So we go immediately to heaven. No more Sheol for us. Okay. Hallelujah. Yes. Oh, we've studied this quite a few times. Mm-hmm. He had to be. be- no, where did everybody else go? They had to have a holy place. Right. And so it made sense that Sheol right. had the two compartments, the, the bosom of Abraham. And, then- and now you know those old, those old gospels about the bosom of Abraham and the, the soul train and that kind of thing. Those all came out of that teaching. Of that the the saint that the saints when Jesus ascended on high after the propitiation was taken care of after he presented himself alive for those forty days when he ascended on high then he set free a host of what captives, captives because they were where in prison okay so anytime you see in the in the New Testament references about that then you can. Remember, go back to look, read it. If you have to, draw a picture of it for yourself so you get the full context of what that place is all about and what its function was in the Old Testament and the New. In the New Testament, it is still the place of the dead. The uncircumcised will do just as they did here. They will go down to Sheol because they are not able to go where? Into the presence of God because why? In the days of their life, they rejected the truth. And that seals your fate. Okay, now hell, okay, she may ask the question, is that what we call hell? A lot of people do. It's really not a very good way of saying it, though, because hell is a distinguished place which comes at the end of the age, which is after the great white throne judgment. God takes everyone from Sheol, who are called the uncircumcised. They go before the great white throne of judgment. They are judged, and then he casts them into hell. The first one into hell is who? The beast beast and the false prophet, and then Satan himself. Right. Uh huh. Right. So first they have the problem of the existence of purgatory. Yes, these verses are where they get confused. I think that's where they probably get the idea of the purgatory. Yeah. No, I don't believe it either, <laughs> because it's, it, there is a place called that's a holding place, if you want to call it that. That's called Sheol, and they are being held there for the day of judgment. Is, have you guys ever heard that phrase? Until the day of judgment, that's what it's talking about. And in Revelation, it calls it the second death. The first death is a physical death on this earth. They go to this place of the uncircumcised. That's what Ezekiel right here is talking about. Isn't that interesting to kind of get that full picture in your mind about what's, what he's speaking about here in this passage? If they're unbelievers, then they're the uncircumcised. They are in Sheol, and they will go before the... Uncircumcised of heart in the New Testament, which, remember, when the new covenant came, what happened to the old? It passed away because the new was implemented. Now, if they live underneath the old covenant, they are judged by the old covenant. And can any man live righteously? No. No. So what the law did, the law was never for salvation. 
Although they were circumcised, although they, there are many who still to this day live underneath the old law, which would be the present day Jews, but if they are outside of faith in Jesus Christ as the coming Messiah, then they are still considered the uncircumcised. They are not circumcised of heart. Yes, right. Right, exactly. Exactly. And it gets complicated. You almost have to do several studies to get all the pieces in your little brain put together on this. But, but the bottom line is that, that without circumcision of the heart, now that Jesus has come, you have to have the circumcision of the heart in the new covenant because the old covenant of, of Abraham has been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in, the, in this new covenant of circumcision of the heart. Uh, Colossians is great to, to cover that one. You remember that one? Circumcision of the body of the flesh is what Colossians talks about. And Romans also, yes. Uh-huh. Oh, good. Oh, good. Thank you. I was going to do that, so I'm thinking that's a good help. Okay, so what else do you, uh, the oracle concerning Egypt in chapter 32. He gives them an indictment in, go, go back to Isaiah, and I want you to go back to, well, yeah, we should do 32. Hold on a second. A little bit on 32. We've got a few minutes. It's, in 32, it's, the title in 32 is what? And where, and where are we? Time-wise, where are we in 32? Five eighty-five BC. We are in the twelfth year, and it's five eighty-five BC. Um, it's about a year and nine months after chapter thirty-one. Okay, which we're not going to get to today. I'm so sorry. Um, is, and what is our theme for chapter 32? What is the major event going on here? Another lamentation. We've had a bunch of lamentations. What other lamentations have we seen so far in Ezekiel? Okay. For Tyre, the, the people or the nation, and a lamentation for who else about Tyre? The king of Tyre. And the king of Tyre is who? Satan himself. So there's a lamentation for Satan. There's a lamentation for the, for the nation of Tyre. There's a, also have been lamentations early in this recording. I know this is really hard. Go way back to chapter 2 and 3 of Ezekiel. Who was being lamented there? And they were Jerusalem and Israel. Talked about them being like lions and remember all that? Boy, it's been so long ago my brain can hardly remember it. It's a lamentation for king of Egypt here. All right, and what do you see in those first 10 verses? How does Egypt again see himself? What is the imagery there? Now he's a lion. Okay, okay, so he sees himself. A lion of the nations. Yeah. A lion of the nations. And, but what is he? Actually, but God says something differently about him. Yeah. You are a monster of the sea. Now, that's a, who was it that last week said to me, isn't the sea sometimes in Scripture? That was you. Go ahead and say it again, Diane, nice and loud. 
represents the nations. Mm -hmm. So for a monster to come up out of the sea could be like someone coming up out of the nations. Yeah. So it's, it's really can also be symbolically a picture of the world or the, the earth or, right? So the sea is like, this is like an earth. That's my earth. That's how I mark it whenever I see it, the sea. So, but you are a monster of the sea, right? Now, he also meant literally uh, of the Nile River, there were monsters in their seas or in their waters as well. So the imagery there for the reader was very clear. They understood it. For you and I, we can also take it to the next step, though. We see them as a monster of the sea. Where, what was it that we saw the, another depiction of them and not being a monster in the sea? It was in 31. There was an imagery there of what? What was the imagery given there? Trees in a forest. And what did God call the earth there? In verse 9, the trees of Eden, which are in what? The garden of God. So what is the garden of God in here? No, the earth, the world. That's right. It's the earth. He's basically using imagery. He's saying the, of the world, it's my garden. And he, call, and he also calls it his Eden. So it's just all imagery. And he's saying these nations are like trees. One of those trees was called Assyria, and what, what kind of a tree was he? A cedar. And what was the, the information given to us then about that particular nation there? It was amazing and so beautiful. And now, by the way, it took a lot of credit for that again, right? Assyria did the same thing that Egypt did, right? I'm so great. I'm so beautiful. I'm so all this, right? But what did God say in verse 9? Who made it beautiful? God made it beautiful. There's your contrast again in 30. So this is 31. God made it beautiful, but Assyria... It's a totally different imagery, though. It's not the same. It's, you can't make it flow through. Here he's now making a different imagery. Just like he made an imagery here about uh, lions of the nation. Here's a monster in the sea. This imagery specifically, you can tell by the flow of 31. He's saying here, the, I'm using the idea of the garden as being the earth. It's my, these are the nations of the earth. If you look up to verse 4, there's kind of a little break there where it says the word place, and then it goes, and he sent out its channels into all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field. And who is the it? Assyria. So who are the other trees? Other nations, right? So he's talking about nations of the earth, and he's using imagery of, a, of the earth being a garden. So it's not really a, a, a direct parallel to the other one. He does, but it's different. It's used differently. Just want to clarify. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because I got a little bit confused on it, too. At first, at first I went, oh, whoops, that must mean then that the king of Tyre was actually, hmm, I wonder. But then I, I go, no, it's a different imagery. I took it a different way. I took it like the prime of God's creation was in Eden. True, true. The, the, the trees that were no. Well, it was at perfection in its creation. That's true. I'm perfect. Yes. 
they were all jealous of her because she was so beautiful. Assyria thought herself to be, be beautiful, and she and she the, all the nations were uh, were jealous of her. But what do we know about it? God made her beautiful. And what was the, the ultimate demise of Assyria in this thing? What happens with Assyria? The sword of the Lord comes against her, right? Let's see, we're in 31. I've got to look at my notes here. Um, yeah, he was brought down. Or she was brought down. Um, and does it say to Sheol? Okay, to 17? Okay. All right, good. So Assyria was brought down to Sheol. And then the question is asked in 18 what? Yeah. Mm hmm. And ultimately, then, what is he saying here? You will also, Egypt, you will also be brought down. I think what's really interesting here is that because Assyria was considered in the world at that time to be so massively powerful and beautiful and you know, it just had all this power, and the whole world recognized it. And what God did was he said, look at what happened to Assyria. When she thought herself to be so beautiful. Again, the word pride comes to mind here again, right? Aren't we seeing a real theme in this? The pride of people, the pride of life seems to be the stumbling uh, block for all the nations. It's the stumble, it was the stumbling block for Satan when we examined the king of Tyre in the previous chapters last week. Uh, and we see it now again for Egypt. Egypt's her pride. She thinks she's so strong and so powerful. She was even willing to try to thwart God's plan and his judgment. And God said, because of that, then I am, going to, I am going to take you down. I will bring against you a sword. Israel was committing this iniquity, and you were trying to help her in this. And you, I'm going to bring you down with the sword, and then you will know that I am the Lord. And so here we see in 31, Assyria thought herself to be beautiful too. And so the whole, the whole unfolding of that chapter 31 is about, if I judged Assyria, guess what? I will judge you also, Egypt. Learn by her example, right? It's kind of the, the moral of the story. Learn by example. <laughs> I would say so. Uh, have you know? I've always I thought about the idea too of um, in my own life, as I have seen, you know, just on a on an earthly basis. Like when I would see my sister get in trouble, and I would see my mom discipline her. Right? She would get a spanking or whatever. That's a terrible word this day. I know, but. My, daughter, my sister would, if she would have, it rarely happened, but if she would have a spanking, I would, I would be watching this, and what do you think I'm learning? Don't do that, because why? Yeah, 
I'm not going to make that mistake, although I'm sure I did, but, you know, my thought was, I'm not going to make that mistake, right? And this is exactly what God is doing right here. He's saying, look, this is what happened to Assyria. She thought she was so prideful. You need to learn by her example. I judged her in her pride. What do you think I'm going to do with you, Egypt? And Egypt actually went one step further because he tried to thwart God in his discipline of his own people, right? So now at the end here, we're, we're saying, then now we're at the point of a lamentation. And, he, and what, again, God repeats is, you, Egypt, you see yourself as a lion of the nations, but you are a monster of the sea. Among the nations, you're a, you're a monster in the sea, is what God is saying of, of her. Okay, so he says, what am I going to do of you then in verse 7? <laughs> That's a big word. <laughs> I will extinguish you. I've got to get this one. E-X-T-I-N. i got to see how to spell that word there. Okay. All right. So I will extinguish you. Now, this is where we see the real example of what's, what was brought out in 31, kind of reiterated then in 32. He says of her in 9 and 10, two or three points in there. What were some things that were said about her? When I do this to you, Egypt, what am, what am I doing this for? Okay, what does it mean I'm going to trouble the hearts of many people? Yeah, because in verse 6, it says they're going to be appalled when they see my judgment of you, right? Yeah, there you go. And in verse 10, the kings will be horribly afraid of you, of, of your consequences of your demise basically when I banish my sword before them so there's that example I just gave you the idea of the sibling watching uh, earlier we had two siblings and she and God rebukes her right who was the two siblings that were brought up earlier the sisters and who were the sisters Assyria and, and Jerusalem right so Jerusalem observed Samaria, I'm sorry, Samaria. Jer Jerusalem observed Samaria, and Samaria had gone into her captivity, and Jerusalem was not learning from her sister, right? So God had judged those northern kingdoms and taken them into their Assyrian captivity, and Jerusalem still, a hundred plus years later, still had not learned the lesson. They didn't seem to pay attention to the fact that God brought this judgment, even though God had told them, if you, if you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will curse. I will banish you off the land if you do not keep your covenant with me. So here we are. We're watching God do exactly as he, as he said. Does, is that not another point that we probably have learned in Ezekiel about our Lord? He does exactly as he says. If, if, is there a parenting technique in this that we might should learn? I mean, not, most of us, is, it's, we're at the place of grandparenting, or close to that anyway. But what do you see going on here with the Lord? How important is it that someone keep their word? It is. It's obedience. There you go. Good one. Right out of, is a Hebrews, right? Obedience is better than sacrifice. It's, well, it might be a quote in there, in there from there. You're right. Uh -huh. I see this in the classroom. I see teachers just keep giving kids another chance, another chance. And mm -hmm. their, their room is bedlam. Mm -hmm. I'm a tutor and I go to different That's rooms. right. Their, their room is not producing anything. 
because there's no consistency and there's no follow through and therefore yeah I you know I think children are happier when there are clear-cut rules would you say then that that applies for you and I as well then as God's children we know that in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we are not bound by the law per se. The law does not judge us. The law is, um, uh, is not a, a, a rendition of, of statements or points that we have to, yes, and I've done this, and yes, now I've done this, and yes, and now I've done this. But with that said, what is the New Testament in relationship to the law? What is the law now? written on our hearts shows the character that's right yeah now we keep it through a relationship being led by the spirit as opposed right but do we nonetheless keep keep the, god's laws do we keep god's laws are we still loving the lord our god with all our heart are we still loving our neighbor as ourselves? And everything that falls in between that would be things like don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, don't commit perjury, don't, you know, uh, covet your neighbor's belongings. I mean, all these other things in between all fall between these two principles of loving God with all our heart, above all things, loving God, and secondly, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And if we do those two things, we keep all the law. And so there's a principle of truth that says that you are to keep my laws. He, and if you don't, he says of, the, of this nation who is so prideful that Egypt itself is so prideful, he says, I am going to extinguish you. So there is, there is a consequence for refusing. Now, tell me this. Do you think that these people have any chance after they've gone to this place called Sheol? No. No. There is no chance. There's no second chance. There's, there is this life once to live, then after this to face judgment. We must make our decisions in this life to submit, to bow, to, to love the Lord, to believe on him. If you believe, then you're saved. It's kind of like Noah and the ark. If you believed, you got on that ark. That's the imagery in that whole storyline is those on the ark were the ones who believed God and got on the ark. They obeyed God. The rest of them, they perished in the flood. Why? They didn't, they didn't believe. Unbelief. All right. So he says of, of them, um, I will extinguish you. Th go the hearts of the people watching, the people, this is my wording, the people watching are going to have troubled hearts. And, they're, and it also talked about being appalled. In other words, lesson learned, right? Hopefully. Lessons, at least lesson witnessed anyway. You can't say God didn't warn you. Should be lesson learned, but if it's not lesson learned, it's at least lesson witnessed, and that will be your witness against you at the day of judgment before the great white throne. God will put that out there and, and say, do you remember this? Uh, they will tremble every moment, every man for his own life on the day of your fall, Egypt. Um, I love it. I th we, all, we really have, have, 
I think least laid down the good understanding of what's going on. The flow of thought here is this idea that man is, man is rebellious by nature. God is saying, you need to recognize who I am. And if not, I will demonstrate to you who I am. And then you will know that I am the Lord. And so he has done this throughout history. But preceding the execution of all these judgments were years and years of God's patience. He brought the prophets. He brought the judges. He brought um, his word to them through his people, through his, his mouthpieces like Ezekiel and, and Isaiah and Daniel and Hosea. I mean, all these people before. They've all been speaking, saying, turn to the Lord and repent. And now God's at a place here where he's saying, this is what you have to understand. There will be judgment. Now, how does this apply to us then concerning the coming of the end of the age? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Let me finish the one word. How, how does this apply? Because we need to take this. This is history, but we still have something coming ahead. What is it? This, basically the same exact thing. There is a day of judgment coming. It's coming for the whole world. It's called Daniel's 70th week, and it's a day of deep trouble. Certainly, we each individually have a day of accountability when we die. If we should die before those end days come, we also are accountable to the Lord for our individual life, right? But concerning what God has prophesied to us, saying that what is coming down the pike, what's coming yet ahead for us is a day of trouble. So what are we to learn from this, and what must we be proclaiming to the world? God has already shown himself. He has already proven to himself that this is what he said he will do and this is what he did. I guarantee you what he says he is going to do in that end time, he will do. You can talk yourself out of the end of the age if you want to. You can deny that it's not going to happen, that your God is so loving and so gracious and so full of love for you that he would never judge you, he would never bring all those plagues and all those horrible things upon the earth. But what has God said I will do these things. My word will be fulfilled. So we've had a great time in Ezekiel. Um, your question, Janice. Yes. Yeah.